The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, July 18th, the Is Aziz Ansari, Sorry edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast Outward. Hi, I'm Nicole Perkins, writer and co-host of Thursday Kit. I'm Marcia Catlin, a professor of history at Georgetown University. And I'm June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And this is the first episode of our new four-person lineup of The Waves. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for taking me in, you guys. Thank you. Um, I just want to say it's been great to read so many emails from listeners about how much they love Hannah and Noreen. I know before I even started at Slate four years ago, I had listened to them. They're both, you know, career role models for me. And it's, you know, sad that they've left, but I, it's the kind of thing where you almost get to see your own funeral, where like <laughs> everyone gets to say all these nice things about them, but they're still alive. So that's been really fun. And I'm extra excited that now, June, you've gotten to join our Week of the Waves. Well, thank you. All right. This week's show, we are going to start with the dust up at Riverside Church, a major Protestant church in Manhattan that just ousted its first female head pastor in its long history, in part because she took a congregant and two church employees to a sex shop. Marsha's already rolling her eyes. <laughs> then we're going to talk about Right Now, Aziz Ansari's new stand-up special, his first release since he faced allegations last year that he had pressured a young woman into sex acts. And finally, we'll discuss the case of Sarah Mylov, a historian whose forthcoming book provided the entirety of the content of a segment on an NPR show, but whose name was somehow never mentioned by any of the three men in the segment. It's really blown up on academic Twitter. I'm really excited to hear what Marcia has to say about that. Mm -hmm. And Nicole, do you want to tell us about our Slate Plus segment this week? Sure. We're going to look at the framing of the conflict between Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the rest of what has been affectionately called the squad, the, the women of color, freshmen, fresh persons. I don't know. How do we want to call them? Uh, in, in Congress, you know, we're looking at the, f- the framing. Is it is it a feud? Is it a catfight? Is it just... <laughs> people doing their jobs. I don't know. Is we'll it find sexist? Out. Here's a snippet of that conversation. It's, it's been a, a conflict with many dimensions that now includes Trump being racist as per usual. But the feud part is what we're adjudicating. What did y'all think? My understanding of this, like I originally felt that it was a bit sexist, this battle back and forth. I do feel like there is an element, an all about Eve element happening here, which um, <laughs> if you're unfamiliar, it is a movie about a young ingenue who is trying to steal the career and life of an, you know, an aging star. More established. A more established yeah. star. Thank you. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet, you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus and we'll be forever in your debt. All right. The Riverside Church story has it all. A female leader, multiple sexual harassment claims, multiple vibrators. June, (laughs) give us the scoop. Well, yes. So Amy Butler became the senior minister at Riverside Church in 2014. This is a storied Protestant church, uh, very much at the forefront of social justice. 
it's I'm not going to say that it's a white church because I'm sure the congregation is interracial. But, you know, I think the, the little bit of an undercurrent here is that this is like a social justice majority white church, um, because I don't think even though a lot of newspapers talked about it being like at the forefront of social justice churches, I'm sure there are lots of black churches that are mm-hmm. even more at the forefront. But anyway, the this it was the big story when she was hired from a church in D.C., which she apparently turned around from a church that was really pretty much dying to a thriving, again, a social justice ministry in D.C., Five years in, it was time for her contract to be renewed, and suddenly the story was that it wasn't going to be. And there was a big story in the New York Times that at first focused on the fact that she had made accusations about uh, sexual harassment. And, you know, with specific details, a, a member of the governing body of the church was found after an investigation to indeed have engaged in, I believe it was condescending and dismissive behavior, and he was removed from the governing council. Um, but then a, the story was kind of sneakily updated to note, as we've mentioned, <laughs> that during a visit to Minneapolis, which for, I learned later, the Festival of Homiletics, which I'm sure yeah. is a hell of a party, uh, the Reverend Butler took two assistant pastors and a congregant to the Smitten Kitten, which is often described as a sex shop. And while there, they spent 30 minutes there, which seems like a long time, honestly. And yeah, because sex spent... shops aren't like the size of a Walmart or something. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, exactly. How many times can you go through those aisles? Right. I mean, I don't know if they were trying things. I'm, I'm not going to speculate <laughs> about that. But she bought a $200 vibrator for one of the people she was with and... Um, she she also just purchased what I believe were, were referred to somewhere as like <laughs> pleasure goods, um, just generally. Um, and, th- and then the, the, sort of the undertone of this revelation where apparently one person of this trip complained, although I recently saw another magazine article and I believe in another Christian publication, one that used asterisks in the word that was on the T-shirt and wine label of the gift that the person who was found to be condescending and dismissive had given to the to the minister, which was sweet bitch in the Christian publication. That was sweet. But um, uh, the, one of the people who was there said, well, I didn't see anybody being uncomfortable there. And if there was an investigation, I wasn't asked about it. So my conclusion about what's going on here is there's just a lot of, there's, we still don't have clarity about why she was dismissed. Um, she was seeking more money, but, you know, that's kind of a thing that happens when your contract is up. Um, so I mean, she, I, I just want to say yeah. that she was seeking a $100,000 raise. Um, yeah, so, right. you know, but it wasn't like it, she was seeking a little bump. It was she was making, I think, two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. She, she was making five hundred thousand dollars, I believe. No, oh, no, really? no, was, no, yeah, sorry. No, 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 no. Yeah, you're right. Two hundred and fifty thousand. But the one hundred thousand dollar raise increase that she was looking for was so that she would be parity with the male pastors yes. of the church who, who had preceded the, yeah, her predecessor her. yeah right. five hundred thousand dollars is her is going to be her payoff apparently i gotta say i was shocked by the size of her income i didn't realize that yeah. leading pastors made that much it's but she was on top of that getting an eight thousand dollar monthly yes. housing allowance so yes it's new yes. york but i mean and i don't live in new york but i'm pretty sure you can get an Incredible! You can get a good one bedroom plus den. (laughs) (laughs) A junior one bedroom. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I'm. I am not trying to denigrate anybody, much less a woman, for seeking more money. I'm just saying, you know, that 
like you said, June, there seems to be many reasons why this contract was not renewed. And it really did seem like a mismatch between the pastor and the congregation that she entered, at least as insofar as the you know governing body of the church sees its congregation and its mission. But I also think it's important to note that she kind of went out there, I think it was last year, with her conversation about Me Too in the context of church. Mm-hmm. And so she had penned a reflection about the culture of sexual harassment in churches. And I think that these are these situations in which everything's fine until it's not. Mm -hmm. That um, once a contentious issue, whether it be about reappointment or about salary, emerges, then all of this evidence or all of these issues that didn't make an impact when they happen all of a sudden become part of the assessment process. And this this is the problem, I think, sometimes with workplaces like churches that are based on some professional standards as well as some like deeply emotional and community-based connections among the people who run them. Yeah, it's it's I mean it is interesting to me that the social justice mission of this congregation was stressed so much. I mean, of course it's part of uh, you know, it's, that makes the story interesting that oh, was she fired because of sexism? Was she fired because she stirred up what does not seem to me to be a controversial discussion of the way that lay people within a church treat either other members of the congregation or members of effectively the staff. I mean, didn't seem anything particularly radical in what she was doing to me, but it does seem like there's a tension between how, as you said earlier, how the church sees itself and how people who are part of that church then actually respond to what's going on. They say they're up for, you know, being right on. But then when someone challenges them, maybe they're not so into it. Yeah, I could see a world in which, you know, so the one of the main incidents that um, Butler was concerned about or, or that she mentioned in her article about Me Too in the church and the incident that got this member of the governing council removed was he had given her the a T-shirt and a wine bottle that said sweet. B-I-T-C-H, you know, with an <laughs> asterisk. But, um, and, you know, I I can't, I, I don't know that anybody would argue that that's an appropriate gift for um, somebody who you're involved with professionally. But I can see a world in which the people at the church who had known that man for a long time and were sort of like, well, oh, that's just Jim, or, you know, I don't know his name, but that's, you know, Jim just, that's his sense of humor. They could see this, you know, relative newcomer arriving in the church and taking Jim way too seriously as a, a reflection of her misunderstanding of, of what the church is about or her disrespect for the culture that preceded her. Well, so you have that. And I guess I'm confused as to why Reverend Butler thought it would be okay to take some staff members and a congregant into a sex shop. Great question. Um, (laughs) Because if you look at it in the same, you know, if you're using that kind of as the thread, right? Or, oh, that's just how um, the the person who gave her the shirt and um, wine was Dr. Lowe. And so Dr. Lowe, 
you know, the same way we could have dismissed him, oh, that's just how he is, whatever. And then, but Dr. Butler said, no, it's making people uncomfortable. The same could be applied here. That's just how she is. Well, it's made someone uncomfortable. Mm. So I'm not sure where she thought that would be okay. I feel like if she, if it was a person, from my understanding, she wanted, it was someone's birthday and she wanted to give them a nice special <laughs> treat. And I guess maybe to promote the idea that, you know, again, our sexualities are healthy. It's okay to have desires. And instead of maybe acting out, why don't you just take some solo time? Okay, fine. <laughs> perfect. But I think she should have done that with that person later. You know, like maybe they had gone back to their hotel and then they were like, you know. That sounds creepier like, <laughs> to me. No, 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 no. I mean, you know. Hotel? No, 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 no. I mean, like, you know, once they went back to the hotel after they finished with whatever they were doing, she could have pulled that person to the side and said, hey, I know it's your birthday. We passed this place. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go in? Very just between the two of Mm -hmm. them asked if it was okay and kept it moving. When you're in a situation where you're out with your friends and one person wants to stop at, you know, a bar or something like that. And maybe not everybody does, Mm -hmm. but they don't want to stop the flow of things. They go in and whatever. You know, I felt like that's maybe what happened. People felt pressured to go into this stuff. I am a. I consider myself a progressive person. I enjoy talking about sex with my friends and making sure that particularly women are able to express desires. But I also know not everybody is interested in the sex shop. Everyone, you know, Mm -hmm. it is, there's still some stigma to it. There's still this idea of what if someone sees Mm -hmm. me, you know, coming out, even though it's Especially at the Festival of Homoelectics. Like anybody (laughs) else could have seen Uh them walking out of the smitten kitten. (laughs) I just love that name also. also. I'm looking at... (laughs) I'm looking at the Yelp review for Smitten Kitten. It's clearly, (laughs) if not a feminist space, a very feminist-oriented space. Mm -hmm. It's very bright. Um, It looks actually just like, you know, your favorite feminist bookstore with sex toys. Um, So I think that the context in which she did it, I think, is part of this really misguided thing that I think can happen to – a, a woman who's trying to embody a kind of feminist ethics in her work as a spiritual leader um, who probably really did think that this was okay because it's in the frame of, well, we're in this like social justice church and here I am. But I think what this really does reveal is that when we think community is an opportunity to not observe boundaries this mm. is what happened because I don't I, I I probably assume her intention was not to creep out or sexually harass. <laughs> and at the same time, I think not knowing those roles is something that is so at the heart of church communities in which mm. boundaries are violated constantly. And mm. I, I just I mean, I think part of it that feels really disappointing is that for a woman to ascend to those to that kind of level of church leadership to not have some type of diligence in her yeah. practice with coworkers mm-hmm. and members of her congregation is unfortunate, but I also think is incredibly symptomatic of a, a lot of how church communities operate. Especially, I mean, somebody who's just filed a complaint about being sexually harassed to go and buy someone a vibrator on so on like weird. a church field trip to a sex shop. It's <sighs> I I can't fathom you know what what she was thinking. But I also have a conspiratorial interpretation mm. of this, mm. which is mm. that 
one of the people, so apparently the trip made just one out of the three people who Butler took to the sex shop uncomfortable. I believe that that person wanted her out anyway for maybe Mm -hmm. some of these other reasons we've discussed and was like, oh, I'm going to sort of go along with this sex shop thing because I know it'll make a really good complaint for me to file. Um, And now as that's coming out of my mouth, I'm realizing that this is exactly the kind of thing that people say to discredit, you know, accusers of men where they're like, oh, why? If you were so uncomfortable, why didn't you say something (laughs) at the time? And, you know, she's in a position of power. Um, But like I, I have to believe that that the power dynamic is different when it's, you know, feminist pastors suggesting you go to a sex shop than like your sexist male boss. Yeah, I, it's funny. I also am driven to conspiratorial thoughts, you know, not supported thus far by the evidence, although I'm sure there is, you know, there are more revelations to come. One of which I should mention too, that like a number of congregants have asked for her to not be dismissed or to be, you know, for her contract to be renewed. And apparently there's a certain threshold in this church that if a certain number of people make a proposal, then it has to be considered by the church. So, you know, it's, it's not, the the matter isn't yet closed, although it sure does seem like Dr. Butler is out the door. But, you know, there's when we're talking about churches, one of the things that's so key is fundraising. And, you know, one of the reasons you want a big congregation, of course, it's to, you know, to serve your, your particular form of spirituality. But also, you know, the churches need money. Churches are in the in the business of raising money for the church and for its work. Um you know, the 70-year-old guy who was behaving like he does, you know, was he a fun, was he a big contributor? There are, you know, again, I don't want to speculate on, on issues that have not yet come to light, but my area of like, what's going on here is around money and fundraising mm. and that I just expect us to see more there. And, and you know, this is all, it's, it, as I think we've all said in our ways, it's really too bad that the first time a woman ascends to this you know this 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 level of 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 ministry in a very prominent social justice church things end in this yeah just big old mess yeah and she's been there for 5 years now so i feel like i don't know there has to have been something else leading up to this that may come out later or something but for it to be just this sudden here's this one trip this one incident she's got to go yeah. um whereas the you know um the person with the t-shirt and the bottle, mm. he was removed from his position, but not necessarily of the church from the church. Right, no. So there's something else at play here that I would, I definitely want to know more about. Just it doesn't feel, I don't want to say fair, but it just doesn't feel right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. something else is happening. Yeah, at, you know that's my tinfoil contribution. <laughs> <laughs> and meanwhile, now this guy Dr. Lowe is sort of taking a victory lap in the news yes. and saying yes. like, I am vindicated. I I was not bullied into submission by her. Um, he had and some weird quote about not being about being erect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's like yes. a bully dude. can only ride you if you're bent over. But I remained erect. It's like, dude, <laughs> Danielle has a great grossed out face right now. <laughs> and so another thing that he did besides the sweet bitch gift that he gave Reverend Butler was he sent an email to somebody saying like, "You should have kissed me for giving you those." church funds, Mm. which makes me inclined to believe you, June, that he may have been some sort of fundraiser. But it also makes me think that there's, this is indicative of maybe two different schools of thought around 
tolerance of sex and sexuality where, mm. um, you know, for one person, for Reverend Butler, the the type of sexuality that is okay to exist in the workplace is taking someone to a feminist sex shop and buying them a $200 vibrator. For mm-hmm. maybe some of these older school people in the church, the type of sexuality that's okay to exist in the workplace is the, you should have kissed me as a thank you for giving you that money or something. It's 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 like coming at sexuality from two different points of view and both bad ideas and also if anyone, <laughs> yes. needs, if anyone needs advice on gift giving i'm really good at that <laughs> i just i'm super super good at giving non-sexual gifts to people <laughs> colleagues and friends that don't that don't like blow up the whole enterprise i mean i think yeah. the thing that you know reading the story i actually was at riverside church a couple months ago and she's oh, really? so beautiful you met her and no i did not meet oh her. i thought you said she's so beautiful <laughs> no the church is oh, so okay. beautiful but i just you know for me when i think of riverside church i think of you know martin luther king's address a year before the day he died about militarism and consumerism and racism and like standing up against the vietnam war and i think because of that speech and because of the social justice mission of that church it falls into that category that I see a lot with schools and other progressive organizations, that the weight of history is sometimes crushing, Mm. that people kind of stand behind this storied past. We are the progressive church. We are the church that did this in 67 and this in 87 and this is in 97. And so I think sometimes it absolves people from like the kind of deep reflection of what it takes to maintain that progressivism instead of saying, okay, that's who we are and that's who we always are. And so I think that no one will do this, but it would be awesome if someone <laughs> learned from this experience and really sat down and say, like, how do we use this past to, like, cover ourselves or not hold each other accountable or not even have, like, a mechanism to talk about those, you know, two things that uh, Christina was talking about, about different ways of looking at sexuality in the context of this church. And I just think that's so disappointing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I think that's all the time we have for Riverside and the sex shop. Listeners, email us at thewavesatslate.com with your favorite non-sexual gift for your colleagues and any scenario that you can imagine where it would be appropriate to take a colleague to the Smitten Kitten and buy them a $200 vibrator. Okay, Aziz Ansari, his new stand-up special right now is on Netflix. Nicole, tell us about it. Oh, boy. Okay, so... Aziz Ansari made his stand-up comeback on Netflix after taking some time away from the spotlight following the critical success of the second season of Master of None, which I really enjoyed. He found himself battling a bit of a murky, quote-unquote, Me Too scandal. A young woman that we know as Grace, um, that's not her real name, she told her story to Babe.net about a date with Aziz in which he allegedly engaged in frequent coercive behavior that left her feeling very unclear about what had happened. You know, had he sexually assaulted her or was he just a manipulative jerk? The allegations launched a thousand think pieces and the website babe.net itself has suffered through some not insignificant changes. It's actually now it's no more. So Aziz had started doing a kind of a not necessarily an apology tour, but he was testing out 
how receptive audiences were going to be to him after everything, after the controversy had kind of got pushed to the side a little bit and he was testing new material. And that's what he called the tour as he was doing it. Um, I think it was called testing new material or trying out new material, something like that. And from that tour, we have um, Aziz Ansari right now, the Netflix special. And he addresses the controversy almost immediately um, with the start of it, which I thought was was good. I thought that was a solid decision. I don't know how I feel about the special overall. I feel like he was definitely, obviously he was making commentary about quote unquote cancel culture where we we look at things from our past with a 2019 lens and we try to get rid of the people who are not great people who have made some terrible decisions but have contributed you know, have made major contributions to uh, American and world culture. So I think he was, you know, trying to speak to his own situation, obviously. He was trying to, he's still wrestling with how to come to terms with what happened. And I do think that he feels bad about it. I do think that he, you know, he recognized that he would not be, he could not be at the special if things had gone any other way. Mm. And so he's very grateful that he still has the opportunity to do what he loves. He does not say, I'm sorry. He does not apologize. And for some people, they think, well, he did apologize to the woman because she showed a, a text message. She revealed a text message where he said, I'm sorry, I misunderstood everything or whatever. But that seemingly is the only apology that we have from him. And, you know, once we talk about this, I also wonder, is that enough? Is it enough that he gave her this private apology or should he actually say, I am sorry? Because he dances around it. He's like, mm-hmm. I feel terrible that this person felt this way. Mm-hmm. Again, very vague. He doesn't, you know, call it by its name. He doesn't he doesn't even evoke me too at all. He doesn't say the, the phrase me too. He doesn't say sexual harassment, sex, you know, anything like that. He's just um, I felt embarrassed. I felt humiliated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt terrible that she felt or that this person felt that way. He doesn't even uh, give her a gender or anything like it's just this person. It's very I did not have rela- sexual relations with that woman. You know, it was, it was a little bit like that. Um, and I understand that he doesn't want to keep dragging it along with him. Um, but it's always going to be that asterisk behind him, at, you know, for the rest of his life, whether he wants it to be there or not. Um the special itself, I thought, was just okay. Mm. Nothing made me laugh out loud. There were some moments that was just like, oh, that's cute. You know, this special overall was fine, aggressively fine. There was one article, um, Doreen St. Felix for The New Yorker was talking about the production of it. Spike Jones directed it, and Spike Jones was on stage with what you call an easy rig, so that the uh, steady cam, right? Mm-hmm. And he's got the camera right in Aziz's face. And Doreen says Spike Jones applies harsh police lighting to Ansari, <laughs> you know, and she says that the shot is ugly. Mm-hmm. And intriguingly framed. And I thought that is perfect because that's something that I did notice. I was like, he doesn't look very, you know, this is not a flattering light for him. And I wonder if this is like, you know, again, a part of him making contrition. See how terrible I look? I'm not in my my shiny suits from my previous stand up. He looked like skinny and wan. And yeah, it it really felt like somebody who had been through it. In my notes, I had, uh, because I didn't know anything about it 
beyond the obvious going into it. And I re- was this directed by a woman who mm. was kind of punishing him? Because <laughs> it really, it was aggressively harsh and awful in terms, and like just too close. You know, mm. nobody, the most beautiful person in the world wouldn't have looked good in that particular framing and right. that much harsh light and also like it was slightly out of focus and mm-hmm. weird yeah it, there was a there was a lot of p- p- apparently intentional ugliness to it yeah i wonder if that's his penance you know yeah. like yeah. I, i'm not gonna say i'm sorry but i'm gonna look like shit yeah. is that <laughs> okay it, it also has to do with the fact that he seems to be revealing a side of himself that is like pessimistic and tired and as you said nicole contrite um where you know the the sort of flash and glamour of some of his previous shows where there's dramatic lighting and his well-tailored suits and even like walking back and forth on a stage in sort of like an energetic alpha Mm -hmm. male like i want your approval and i'm gonna get it kind of a thing like in this he's just sitting on a stool it it felt very of a piece with the content of mm-hmm. the special which is very much very different from the tones of his previous stand-up where he's sort of like an optimist and a romantic and now mm-hmm. he's like we're all shitty people I'm shitty mm-hmm. you're shitty he's doing something that I think now a lot of comics will probably try to do which is the Hannah Gadsby Nanette thing like implicating the audience in whatever yeah. social ill you you would have maybe normally explicated with humor but making your audience feel bad about it i'm like is this is this comedy now where people are just going to go to comedy shows to self-flagellate um Mm -hmm. but he it it it, you know the way he looked the way you the you could see behind him into the backstage where there was like a fluorescent light on and like all these shadows of people walking around in a very distracting way was like Mm -hmm. this is a z stripped down you know in in his dark place where he's been for the past year this thing was so infuriating for me to listen to. Really? I actually, um, I didn't watch it. I had it on my Netflix on my phone while I was walking in D.C. So I w- perhaps the heat also made me so angry. <laughs> I hated this incel light bullshit. Wow. Yeah, Ooh. hot take here. Um, here's the thing. He must have been very humiliated and very chastened by this revelation of this date. I understand that. And I also understand that there was um, clarity that he didn't necessarily commit what we would call a crime, but that he, like I think a lot of people, found themselves in a sexual situation that had a lack of clarity. I completely get that. But, oh my gosh, the whining and the victim, um, the uh, making himself a victim was disgusting to me because... His previous comedy, it wasn't just like, I'm fun, lighthearted disease who's romantic and I love Italy. Um, (laughs) You know, Master of None was an opportunity for him to do some some type of critical intervention in the production of comedy. But what bothers me so much is he was so dependent on a kind of view of the world that he completely decides to blow up Mm. because he was held on account for something. And this Mm. is the type of behavior I see in these people who take these far right turns. You know, it's like I used to be a radical, but I'm going to take a far right turn because Mm. I got called out on something. And I and I while some of his critiques, I think, are completely reasonable. um, There is a genre of, oh, liberals just cannibalize Mm. themselves. um, Hot takes that I think 
are not only lack creativity, but they're in the service of a kind of politics that I just think is really just bad. I just mm. think it's bad. It's not funny. It's not creative. And he did so much of it that it shows that his time kind of away has taught him nothing mm. and that he isn't apologetic, but he's also not very critical and not very smart. And I mm. think that the um, the bait and switch that he did through Master of None, it, it you know, you can see it in the text, right? Like he has this show that has such a diverse cast, but the love interest is always white. Yeah. He mm-hmm. has this um, episode of Master of None where he quits a show because of sexual harassment, but he can't tolerate a woman suggesting that, you know, that he violated a boundary. Like, I, I just, the lack of the, I, I'm fine if you're like aggrieved and pissed that you got called out. Trust me, I am. I have a very thin skin. I don't like being criticized. But what I don't think is okay is for you at the like height of the like Trump era to start saying all of this shit <laughs> um, yeah. that mm-hmm. is political and that is real and that is about your audience. Because I think by doing that, um, he understands that there's an audience waiting in the wing for his victimization. Oof. Yes. Okay. So in the special, he did this little thing where he's like, "Hey, did you guys hear about the totally. the Trump pepperoni on pizza or something <laughs> the like that?" Right. Pepperoni uh, sw- pizza. Swast- yes. Um, and so you know, of course, the audience is like, "Yeah," or they clap along to show that they heard. And so he points to someone else, like, "Where did you see that? Did you see it in the Times or the Post?" And the guy's like, "I think it was the Post and whatever." And then Aziz, um, oh, sorry to spoil, but um, Aziz is like. I just made all that up. That's not anything that happened. And then he goes on to say, you think your opinion is so valuable. You had to you have to chime in on something that doesn't exist. And I was like, fuck you, Aziz. (laughs) Don't don't try to make this about your situation. This this scandal, this, you know, again, I know I keep saying it's murky because we still don't know. And, you know, whatever. But that was that's what I meant by. You know, he kept coming back to it without saying it, without calling it by its name, you know. And, you know, he's talking about how so many people were just immediately like, oh, well, he's canceled. I don't want to have anything to do with him anymore because of this. And that pissed me off. Like, that was what annoyed me that he kept coming back to. You guys are believing anything that you hear or read and you don't know the whole story, Mm -hmm. which is true. Okay, right. 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 But he's clearly talking about himself and he's using it as a you know, this springboard to point fingers at the audience, at us, instead of, again, taking his own responsibility. I, you know, I see what he's trying to do with the stand-up, and I think he did it in a different way than someone like Louis C.K. was doing, where Louis C.K. just kind of came out. He's doing all these shows now after his scandal where he's, you know, masturbating in front of women without their permission or coercing them into watching him do this. So Louis C.K. is back on the road and do, and he's very, he's just like very entitled. He's Extremely like, I should be reactionary. here. Extremely reactionary, even more yeah, so than Aziz. Yes, yes. And he's, and Louis C.K. is just like, I can't believe they tried to, you know, I don't know. The way that he's confronting the situation is not the model way to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Aziz is coming at it in a different way where he's like, 
can't you see how terrible I feel about it? And now I, I, I do feel really bad and I'll never take this for granted again. And I am definitely going to uh, be more thoughtful about whatever. But also, hey, now I have this girlfriend that I'm taking to meet my grandmother. Mm-hmm. So clearly I'm not going to do this again, right? Don't you trust me? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and I was just like, ah, Yeah, he did make a lot. He, he made yeah. much of his yeah. Caucasian girlfriend. So here's yeah. the thing, bro. Your issue with what, you know, Me Too cancel culture, it started to veer into stuff about race where I was like, are you are we really doing this? I think that's a really interesting kind of slippery slope collision course. Like I'm taking offense to the ways that I have been kind of called on the carpet for my sexual behavior and like everyone's racist nbd like what are you talking about shut up and especially again as someone who through master of none did you know episodes about a muslim family and about you know um kind of being racially profiled or racially stereotyped especially in the um in the entertainment industry i just you know i I think that there is a way of doing this i really do and i think that there's a way of saying like I was really embarrassed and humiliated and here are the other things that I can do with my comedy that doesn't require this kind of um I, I it's so funny it it what I guess what it it shows me is that this time underground and I think for a lot of men who have been put on blast None of it ever ruins their lives, but they suggest that it does. And that's what I think really annoys me. He's like, you know, I didn't know if I would have this again after having an incredibly successful career in a in an industry that's really hard to break through. And I'm sure having residuals from Parks and Recs, I don't know if I could have this again. It's like, well, it doesn't kind of work like that. And so while the part of me that believes that people are not, you know, should not be judged by their worst day and shouldn't be condemned forever, I just think that this model of the bounce back is makes me really uncomfortable and I think it undermines the potential of the moment for people to be just more thoughtful about their behavior past and present. These men who are accused and have, particularly if they have multiple accusations, for them to say that their punishment is that they now have to think and be more thoughtful and be more careful. Oh my gosh, really? You've got to like pause for a second? That's That ruins your life? Come on. Like that's so ridiculous yeah. mm-hmm. and stupid. And I, I'm just so offended that, you know, these men are like, well, now I can't just do what I want. No, you never could. You never could. You just did. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I want to say I actually didn't hate this as much as I mm. thought I would. I I didn't, you know, have sort of an unbridled like laugh fest about it or anything, but I think in terms of the way somebody could use their own honest experience to make comedy and come come back maybe I'm maybe I'm my standards were so low because I saw what Louis C.K. did and his turn was so far right and so reactionary and so bitter where he's like mocking Parkland students, Parkland activists and trans people and just sort of like out of left field. Like, why are you picking? Why are you punching down instead Mm -hmm. of punching like his stuff used to be a lot more self-deprecating and like, look what a shit I am. Now it's like Mm -hmm. I need to shit on other people. Um, So maybe I was like, well, Aziz didn't do that. That's fantastic. But like, I thought it was interesting to see how 
I think the character that you were talking about, Nicole, where he's just like, I'm so cute and harmless. And like maybe is the sort of person where like a woman is like really attracted to that. And then once she actually gets in the moment and he turns into this like aggressive sexual being, she's like, that wasn't the character that I expected. Mm -hmm. He knows that he can't go back to that anymore. And so this, Mm -hmm. I think, was him trying to create a new character where he was being very sexually explicit um, and being also a little bit of a little bit woo in the way that I think people who have near-death experiences can sometimes be yes. where he's like I just realized we need to live in the moment and be grateful and like thinks that those realizations are really profound and that other people need right. to hear them and are ready to receive them from him like I w- it was just a very interesting text for me in that way and I don't think it was terrible I did think it was fucked up that he, he was suggesting on several occasions that like the people who say things are racist and the actual racists are like equally bad where he's like, Mah, every everybody just uh, is is screaming really loudly at each other. And even the people who aren't screaming anything are bad. And like, we're all bad. Shrug. Like, that didn't seem correct to me. Yeah. It kind of reminded yeah. me, honestly, of um, what Ellen DeGeneres does, where I feel like they're doing the same thing, which is being like, can everyone just get along? But from opposite ends of the spectrum where like Ellen DeGeneres, it's sort of like, ignoring all the bad things that are out there Mm -hmm. and Aziz Ansari is directly confronting them but kind of defusing them or saying like well we'll never fix anything because everything is we're all so bad so we just have to like appreciate our parents while they're alive. The Ellen example is actually really interesting because for those of us old enough to remember (laughs) when Ellen was the activist because she came out on her show and then her Mm -hmm. show got canceled and then she would go and do these these lectures on college campuses like she did when I was in college and she would say things like gay people didn't watch my show and didn't support me and was really pissed and was not famous Ellen with the dancing but it was like the Ellen like why did you screw me I don't have a TV show anymore so I guess I'm Ellen the activist and and there was this this real kind of resentment towards your base Mm -hmm. until you Mm -hmm. could become something else and I think for Louis Mm CK who I used to really enjoy a lot of it Mm -hmm. was about him being a dad Mm. And I think that each of these people have like, I'm a, I'm a good one character that they used a lot in their comedy. So as Louis C.K. is like, I'm a shit, but I'm an amazing dad. Mm. And mm-hmm. Aziz Ansari is like, I'm one of the good guys and I'm not racist and I'm not problematic. And for Ellen, it was like, I'm everyone's like gay friend that you want to accept until they feel like their livelihood is threatened and they either pivot or they get incredibly reactionary. And so I think that there is a genealogy of this behavior of high profile people that it's some of their narcissism and some of their sense of entitlement. Hmm. That's so well put. And I can't help noticing that even though, you know, I watched this so we could talk about it, we're talking about it. But I think Aziz Ansari, who's benefiting from being like the least shitty of the shitty men to a certain (laughs) extent, and he's not He's certainly not exhibiting model behavior, as as you all have chronicled so well in our discussion, but he's not being completely awful. Um, He's also making a butt ton of money from this tour. I mean, okay, he was at BAM on this tour instead of at Madison Square Garden, but it was still packed from, you know, multiple nights and he's been going all around. And, you know, this, this, even after what happened, even doing what to me was just very mediocre material, like he's bringing in the people and this situation has actually put him more front and center. You know, comedians like musicians, they have a limited lifespan and 
you know, yeah, he was kind of moving into this other like act, you know, as Louis C.K. did before him, um, you know, doing acting and being in a show. And, you know, obviously he's done that as well in in parallel with his stand up for a long time. But that this has really seems to me to have actually given him a new lease on professional life. And that just kind of disappoints me um, because, yeah, way to get punished by doing a big tour that's bringing bringing right. in bank. Right. This was very healing for me. I'm glad we all got to process this together. Um, <laughs> listeners, if you've watched this special, I'd love to hear what you think. Our email address is thewaves@slate.com. All right. There's been a wave of controversy crashing upon the world of academia this past week. Marsha, give us a synopsis of the Sarah Mylov story. I never get to talk about baseball, so I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Baseball academia intrigue. So uh, The Lily, which is the ladies' page of the Washington Post, uh, published an article by Carolyn Kitchener that was about Sarah Mylov. And she is an assistant professor of history at the University of Virginia. And she has a forthcoming book about the cigarette, a political history. And she was at home nursing her baby when she heard on NPR's Here and Now um, three men talking about her book. And two of them were members of the Backstory podcast, Nathan Conley and Ed Ayers. And they were talking about some of the content in Sarah Mylove's book. And the segment ended without a mention of her name. And like all good things, it was taken to Twitter, in which um, a conversation was had about three issues. One, what does it mean for a woman who is early in her professional career in academia to be acknowledged for her research? The limitations of broadcast in terms of talking about big history. And what was the responsibility of the historians in the segment as well as the people who produce these segments for Here and Now and for Backstory to attribute uh, Sarah Mylov's work. And like all things Twitter, it went wild. (laughs) And so um, Roxanne Gay's tweeting about it. um, Margaret Atwood's tweeting about it. wow. Yeah. And so... Did you tweet about it? I did not tweet about it, but I have thoughts. Um, So (laughs) just in the spirit of the fullest of disclosure, I know Nathan Conley. He is a friend and colleague and a fellow historian of capitalism. And I think that there are a lot of layers to this story. But I think the reason why it gained so much traction outside of academia is because for a number of women in the workplace, they understand that feeling of not being Mm. acknowledged for their hard work. And so whether it is spending years on a book or writing the best report, or coming up with a very good idea, and then someone says the same idea, but it's accepted because a man said the idea. That feeling of not being recognized, I think, is what resonated with the story. Mm. But I think that for people kind of within academia, this also opened up just how hard it is for us to translate our work to a broad Mm. audience. And what does it mean to acknowledge and attribute work? I think it's important to note that Sarah Mylove has been a guest on the Backstory podcast. She has said, you know, I think that it wasn't cool that I wasn't attributed, but I don't think there was a nefarious effort afoot to not acknowledge my work. Another woman historian was acknowledged in the segment. There are a lot of um, women who work for both of these shows who have piped up and said, like, I told them to attribute. Some of it got edited out. And I think the tensions that 
complicate the story are important to also acknowledge while at the same time realizing that why this resonates is because this happens so often. Yeah, it's funny because I came at this story from a journalist perspective, obviously. Mm. And so my I was just like cringing throughout the entire thing, like, uh, this could happen to me, you know, but, but for right. the grace of goddess, go I, where I, I know that I've written plenty of pieces and been asked to speak on the radio about them or something. And certainly almost every piece I write is informed by other people's reporting and research. And sometimes I'll say, like, according to a New York Times piece by blah, and sometimes I won't because it's just, you know, it's it's knowledge that's out there. And who knows who was the first person who reported it or whatever. Um, And, you know, I'm not always going to acknowledge every person who's research or reporting has informed my own analysis in every piece that I write. I have also seen people pipe up when a journalist writes something like, according to a story in Vox, blah, but doesn't name the author. So it's like, Mm -hmm. do you have to name both the outlet and the author? I think the times when I've seen people criticize a journalist for doing that, for omitting the name of somebody and just naming their outlet, it's been because the author was a woman and especially a woman of color. You know, I think it's the kind of thing where it, it happens very often, but when it happens to a person who, you know, is part of a community whose work is often undermined, marginalized, unrecognized, right. it feels like just insult to injury. So, yeah, this is tough because it's it's not necessarily akin to the cases that I just described. It really right. was like the entire segment was about her book and sort of pegged to her book. Her book is coming out and and the Backstory podcast had talked to the publisher about, you know, can we get a copy of this book? Can we have my love on the show about it? Blah, blah, blah. And then they they go up and literally every piece of information is from her book, but they never say her name. So I I definitely think that's a different situation where it's incumbent upon the the historians and the producers to say, you know, this information comes from this book that's coming out, which you should also buy. This then I know I I'm not in any way saying oh everything was fine because clearly things did not work out as they should have. But I feel compelled to sort of the, another aspect of this was my love said why wasn't I invited on the show? It was talking about my work. They know me. Uh, I know how to get to a studio. Um, and in many ways, like yeah, there's that. That is it's that's a question that I can see people asking a lot. At the same time, I do know how that happens. Like, so the here and now segment is a regular segment that they do with the backstory uh, guys. And, you know, so they have their here and now person, the two backstory people. That's three people. Bring in another the person. It's a person you don't know. You don't know their dynamic. You're right, June. Four like, people is a lot to have on a Someone who you don't know. Someone who you don't know how you're going to gel with. Um, like, I totally get, like, how how that could come to be. At the same time, obviously, that doesn't excuse it, but I, when that happened and when I saw my love, like, saying, why, why didn't they invite me? Like, I knew why. And that doesn't mean it's right. That doesn't mean it's okay. It's kind of just how you do things. And so I, and also just this idea of attributing, like even, so for example, Slate actually has a bunch of history podcasts and has had a bunch of history podcasts. Um, And I think of like Slow Burn and and No Fiasco, there was always a bit at the end that said, you know, you can read the bibliography of books that we consulted or works that we, and I, I, you know, I always think, oh God, that's so clunky. And yet, 
I understand why it's so important uh, that you do show, you know, show your work, show, especially like just as a service to people, like you're interested in this topic. Hey, why don't you read this? And as several people pointed out in the My Love scenario, not only, sure, you can pre-order, but you can't just go to your bookstore and order it. And now I think a whole bunch of people would be like, yeah, that was interesting. I feel like I've probably gotten everything I'm going to get out of that. So, yes, her name is now out there, but I don't know, again, that she's actually going to profit from her work. I want to also talk about like the mechanics of being in the booth uh, when you're doing a podcast. Um, When I was doing Thursday Kit with my co-host, Bim Adewunmi, who's now at a public radio show herself, we would have a guest and sometimes more than one guest. So it would be three or four people talking and it could it was sometimes overwhelming and you did lose a guest and you, you know, as the hosts are bantering and that kind of thing. But one thing that we always try to make sure to do is acknowledge where we got whatever we were talking about, you know, oh, here was a funny tweet that's by at so-and-so. And and then we would say, we're going to link it here or whatever. We have a Tumblr. So we would say, we'll put this all in our Tumblr so you can get all of the info, you know, if we're not able to repeat where we got it from. So it was just a matter of, we, we maybe because we are women, maybe because we are women of color, we were very careful to make sure that we cited where we got something that was definitely not our own idea or something that we were, you know, springboarding from. So when I read all of this stuff and I saw all of this stuff with the lack of attribution, I was very concerned, not only as a woman who has been, you know, who has had stuff kind of stolen or borrowed, but also just from a producer and host kind of point of view like how how do you go through a a whole episode and not say where you got the information that you're talking about um and I know that there's been some discussion of it gets you know edited out or whatever and I I don't know if that is a producer decision solely or if the hosts are telling the producers just cut that out for time or what but I do think that that's something that maybe um the podcast needs to go back and examine you know how they do things because now people are probably going to be looking for that, you right. know, if they're going to be talking about this guy's stuff and then they make sure to cite all of his work. Well, why couldn't they have yeah. done that before? So now I hope that they do kind of look at the production of the show um, in more detail. And I hope that once they bring um, Sarah Myloff back on the show to talk about this, that they properly apologize and they don't keep throwing each other under the bus because that's some stuff that's going on too right now. I want to raise something about this story because um, it's also it's it's also about kind of the age we live in and how you can be center stage at any moment. And I think this can fuel some of our best and worst behavior. And so, you know, when you think about being a scholar who's untenured at a prestigious school like University Mm -hmm. of Virginia, this is like both exciting and terrifying, I think, probably for Sarah Mylove, because on one hand, you know, people are really excited for her book. You know, with the book coming out in October, it's a little early for the advanced copies to be circulated. So I think that also added a level to Mm -hmm. some of how this story was developed. But she's now in this position where people are very excited about her research. They're even more excited about the story and the slight and what it represents. But she also has to kind of like live through this also. And I think that for people who are um, scholars who want to have some type of public impact, you think that some people might take notice within your communities, maybe like a few, you know, like 
people show up at a library that you come talk to. But when it gets this big, I also think that there's something to be said about um, what are these pivots that are available to men and women to Mm. become kind of high profile and in the spotlight Mm. and why. And so not attributing women's work has this kind of outsized impact because what it takes to get noticed and to have people drawn to your work also takes a little bit more. So there's this weird thing that's also happening with the story. But if you are very interested in how this happens and as a journalist or a scholar or someone who's just interested, Monica Kristen Blair is a backstory researcher who is also a grad student. And she tweeted about this, a very long thread about how this all went down or some of it went down. And she's at Monica K. Blair, BL. AIR. And I think what is helpful in this moment is that as the story emerges, people are explaining to you how things get produced, Mm -hmm. which is really, really hard to wrap your mind around. Um, I was on a scripted podcast for four months in 2017. It was the hardest thing I ever had to do because all I had was my voice and the citation problem was a huge one for me. And as a historian, I was like, well, doesn't everyone love the sound of someone reading footnotes to them <laughs> softly. Um, no, they don't. And and I've been in that position where it's like, okay, you know, like, can you just say a book about this? Like, do you have to say the person's name in the last five places they worked? But I think what's interesting is that in an age in which um, there are people who are concerned about fake news and, you mm-hmm. know, um, facts and truth, there is also these formats and platforms that don't allow us to dig deep. And that's why I'm actually really excited. There are podcasts like Backstory that do deep history, and it's not just all men. Joanne Freeman is also um, part of that team. Um, And her voice is also very important because it used to be the American History Guys. And so I think, Mm -hmm. if anything, everyone go read a book. (laughs) I was also thinking about that perhaps the format of these shows where it's, you know, a couple of men, in in this case it was three men, sort of synthesizing scholarship that isn't their own. Like, is that format sexist? And and even, you know, hosts of a lot of programs, I know NPR has made some strides in diversifying their roster of hosts, but historically these are people who have been men and are more likely to be white and male. And then, you know, the people under them doing the scholarship who aren't getting the voices on the radio are more likely to be women and people of color than the people at the top. I saw something recently where it was a a thing on Twitter. There were three researchers on a study. Um, It got written up by some news program. And, you know, the the three researchers were one white man and two people who were not white men. And in the write-up of the study, it said the white guy's name and his fellow researchers. You know, it's like... There's just so many steps along the way where sexism and racism, even if it's not direct, even if it's just like who's at the top of the list or who's the one whose voice is getting heard, can like lend itself to erasure of people's work or or like you said, Marsha, just make it harder for them to get their work recognized. Or also people feel like, okay, it's not going to be a big deal if I piss off this person. Oh, interesting. Because I think... There are certain people that I know, if they are not attributed and acknowledged, it will be a thing because they're so powerful, because they have so many people who are obsessed with them. They're such a big deal that their um, exclusion is a is a problem. And then there are other people, their exclusion is just an exclusion. They're like, I'm just happy to, that my work was mentioned right. at all. Or, or, you know, this is kind of, I mean, this is 
for her, for Sarah Milev to be the topic of a story that went viral in this way, um, there there's a part of me that felt like, God, if this was me, maybe I'd be too scared for this story to come out mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you'd never know what the blowback is going to be. Like, mm-hmm. oh, that Marsha, she's a problem. You know, she's a problem. I mean, I've, I, I had a, a incident last year where I gave a lecture at a university and there was someone who was in the audience and we had dinner afterward and then he published an article with the entire framework of my lecture, like a few months later. Ah. And I, you know, I really, I was like, do I, do I even engage in this? Right? Like what type of social capital do I burn up? What kind Uh of energy do I burn up confronting this and how this person's situated and I'm situated? Like, does that even like, does this do anything? And it's a really, it's a really hard thing. And I think that this is just the, you know, the elbow patches version of this, right? There's different versions of this in, I think, every industry. All right. Uh, Sarah Mylov's book, The Cigarette of Political History, is out in October. I'm sure it's going to be great. Listeners, have you ever been overlooked or uncredited, unattributed for your work? Let us know. Tell us any good slash horrible stories at thewaves at slate.com. All right. Time for our recommendations. June, our newest member on this week. (laughs) Why don't you go first? Yes, I would love to recommend a book that actually has podcasting as part of its storyline. It's a novel by Lauren Meckling or Metchling. I'm absolutely certain how you pronounce her name. It's called How Could She? And it is a delightful novel set in the world of journalism in Toronto and New York. Kind of follows a group of friends, a group of sometime colleagues over the kind of early part of their careers, uh, their lives. And as I say, I don't want to spoil anything. I'll just say that podcasting is a kind of a motif that a reappears and appears at various points in what to me was a very amusing uh, way. Uh, And actually not only amusing, but if you are the kind of person who likes to read novels uh, set in kind of bohemian, largely white Toronto and Brooklyn uh, settings and likes a bit of journalism and podcasting kind of in, I don't know, likes a bit of journalism and podcasting content, this novel How Could She by Lauren Meckling uh, should fit the bill. That sounds great. Marsha, what do you have? If you love history and you love beautifully written prose, I highly recommend Sadia Hartman's Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, Intimate Histories of Social Upheaval. And it is the story of women in the early 20th century living in major cities and being castigated for having fun, having sex, (laughs) drinking, talking too loudly on streets. And basically, this is an innovative way of doing history by looking at the archives of social scientists who studied women who were wayward in their lifestyles. And she brings just a really beautiful lens in thinking about how we think of women who are deviants and who are at the margins in this really kind of luxurious way. She is an academic who is fabulous and no one else writes like her. So if you love history and you love beautiful prose, I recommend Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, Intimate Histories of Social Upheaval. Nicole, what about you? Okay. I am recommending The House Next Door by Anne Rivers Sidons. Sidons? S-I-D-D-O-N-S. Anne Rivers Sidons. It is a horror novel. It's scary. It's not gruesome. It's written in 1978 or it was published in 1978. Um, If you haven't read it, I strongly suggest you read it. It's so good. It's about this house. So it starts from the point of view of Colquette Kennedy, 
who lives in this great, lovely house in the South, um, kind of, it vaguely points to Atlanta, um, and it's kind of a commentary on, you know, the nouveau riche in the South. So Cole is with her husband, Walter, and across the street, they have, there's an empty lot. And she was hoping that this, that lot would stay empty because mm-hmm. it's a beautiful, green, lush little piece of land that she enjoys walking, you know, um, looking out at. Um, but soon the lot is bought by a couple, the Harrelsons, and they built this beautiful house. The architect is there. He comes by. He establishes a relationship with Walter and Coquette Kennedy. But then something starts happening with the inhabitants of the house. They, um, all their worst fears come to life. Um, so in like in, in a two year period, three people, three families move into the house and each one has something. There's an escalating terror with each one. Um, and, um, so Colquette and Walter try to figure out where is this evil coming from? And they try to keep people from moving into it. Nobody believes them. Yeah, it's really good. It's very sinister. It's not necessarily gruesome. Like I said, you know, you're not going to get, you know, descriptions of very graphic things. Some things will be kind of hinted at very strongly or whatever. And then obviously, since it's from 1978, there are going to be references that may be a little outdated when talking about class Mm. uh, and what is considered uh, a very rich thing. But it is a delight. You can read it in a day and that's just because it's you cannot put it down. It's so so good. I think there was a movie made from it, made for TV movie in 2006 that was not done very well. So avoid that. <laughs> read the book. <laughs> it's called The House Next Door and River Sedans, S I D D O N S and it's just really really good. So many books this week. I'm going to recommend an album uh, by Goldlink who is a hip-hop artist from the D.C. area. His second album, Diaspora, dropped last month. I'm a huge Goldlink fan. Like, ever since he was coming up in the D.C. hip-hop scene when I was the arts editor at our local Alt Weekly, I was bullish on him. And his latest album is fantastic. He has a really unmistakable sound. He has a really diverse range of influences. He's very versatile, but you, you, when you hear one of his tracks, you will be able to recognize almost all of his other tracks. He's got um, some of the best beats, I think, in contemporary hip-hop and dance music. Really good for summer. All of his tunes, I think, are pretty, like, summery. The beats are, like, I want to say they're, like, chewy or crunchy or, like, <laughs> they definitely have, like, a mouthfeel to them. He's only 26, and he's got this confidence beyond his years. And not just like a sort of braggadocious confidence, but the confidence of like restraint. And he has just a very pleasant voice. There are some really fantastic guest artists on the album too. Tyler, the creator, Khalid, Pusha T. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite albums of the year. There's some good like UK type dance beats on it, some Nigerian hip hop and pop influences, in part because he has featured artists from a bunch of different places around the world. It's, it feels very global and, you know, in dialogue with other contemporary hip hop and pop happening around the world. But it's not just like a mishmash of cultures <laughs> and scenes and influences. It's really, he's doing something, I think, pretty new and singular. 
So yeah, Goldlink has gotten like relatively big over the past couple of years, but I think he deserves even more national attention. And I highly recommend that all our listeners check out Diaspora. It's out now. Buy it. All right, that's our show for today. Thank you to our production assistant, Alex Barish, and our amazing producer, Danielle Hewitt. For Marsha Chatlin, Nicole Perkins, and June Thomas, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.